If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to be continuing our sermon series through this New Testament epistle. This is written by the Apostle Paul to what we're calling the raw believers in Corinth. They were new, they were fresh, they were first generation Christians, and they had to get over uh, an issue of worldliness. 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, we're going to pick up right where we left off. This is part of our commitment to consecutive expository preaching, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're looking at 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, on page 955. And before we go to God's word, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before your word this morning as your assembled church. We come in faith. We come listening in faith. We pray that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. Show us the true meaning of this passage. Show us how to best apply it. We want to understand what this means. And then we also want to understand how to put it into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It used to be that if you wanted to travel somewhere new that you had never been to before, you used a map, an actual paper map, and you navigated to this new destination by consulting the map or the road atlas and following the the overhead signs on the interstate and the exit signs and and the road signs and things like that. And if you were visiting a friend that, let's say, you hadn't seen in several years, who lived in a new city far away, in a a new house, you had never been there before, you had better give them a call ahead of time on a landline and get directions so you know where you're going. It was extremely difficult to find your way through new places. There There were no... aerial overhead maps that you could consult and no no little blue dots to check. And of course, that all changed with the advent of the GPS technology. Now, it it is extremely easy to, to get where you're going, even if you've never been there before. And all you have to do is type in the address, and after what seems like a split second of, of calculation, your route is planned. And then it's a matter of, of following the, the cursor or the little blue line or the little green line and, and listening to the voice prompts. Uh, in 3.8 miles, exit here, turn left here. Makes it very easy to get where you're going. And usually after a combination of visual cues and, and voiceover directions, when, when your vehicle finally rolls up in front of the, the desired address, there is one last voiceover. It's fairly universal, no matter what GPS you're using. It says, you have arrived at your destination. In 1 Corinthians 7, 17-24, Paul is telling these raw believers in Corinth, you have arrived at your destination. You don't need to go anywhere else. You you have arrived. That that current life setting that you're in, when you were called by God, is where God wants you. You don't have to go anywhere else. 
Now the believers in Corinth were looking for something that would make them a little more acceptable to God, a little more useful to God. And so they were thinking, if I could just get for, from where I am right now to, to over here, if I could just positionally get, get to that location, then I would be in a better position to be used by God. Then, finally, I would be able to be a better disciple. And Paul is teaching them that there is no reason to leave their current life setting and go anywhere else. Wherever they are now, that's where God wants them. He's telling them, you have arrived. You have arrived at your destination. Let's look at these verses, 17 through 24, and see what he says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his calling already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can, gain your freedom and avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. If you've been following along, and if you're familiar with this chapter, chapter 7, so far, Paul in verses 1 through 16 has been talking about marriage, marriage, marriage. And then in verse 17, it almost seems like an abrupt shift, and he talks about remaining in the setting, the life circumstances in which you were called. And then immediately after that, in verses 25 through 40, he, he returns back to the topic of, of marriage, marriage, marriage. And that's what finishes out the chapter. So there's this, this kind of oasis right in the middle of an entire chapter devoted to marriage. But I don't want us to treat this like an off-topic rabbit trail. Let's not dismiss this as, as a parenthetical statement. Let's not look at these verses and say, well, you know, this would be much better if they were to be relegated to a footnote down at the bottom. So I could just continue on through chapter 7 and, and get everything he's saying on, on marriage uninterrupted. No, it's not a footnote. It's not a rabbit trail. Before Paul can continue to talk about marriage, he first has to cement his teaching on why the Corinthians should not seek to escape marriage. That's what we looked at last week. Remember, the overall point was remain where you're at. If at all possible, remain in your current, in your current marriage to your current spouse. The reason they are to remain where they are is because none of these things that the Corinthians are concerned about, celibacy, marital status, he's going to introduce circumcision, slavery-free status, none of those things or anything else that they've been concerned about have any spiritual significance attached to them. He's telling them the only thing that matters is faith in Christ and remaining faithful in Christ. 
So let's fully unpack the, the command here. This is a very simple outline, the, these eight verses, very simple. You've got the command, and then you've got two illustrations. It goes command, illustration, command, illustration, command. Pretty simple. We need to unpack the command in order to see how he's using his illustration. So verse 17 lays down the command, but he repeats it two more times. Let's look at all three examples, all three statements. Verse 17 says, Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And then again, verse 20, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. And then again, verse 24, So brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. I, I hope you could hear that. It's the same thing. Said a little bit differently, but, but repeated three times. Three times in eight verses. Kind of hard to miss the main point in this passage. Extremely difficult. So he's saying, God called you. Where were you? In what life setting, in what circumstances did you find yourself when God called you to faith in Christ, when he convicted you of your sin and your need for a Savior? Were you married? Were you single? He's going to ask, were you circumcised? Were you uncircumcised? Were you slave? Were you free? Were you uh, working as a craftsman or a fisherman? Were you managing a home and raising children? Were you in government? Were you a household servant? Were you a farmer? What was the setting of your call? Whatever it was, that setting has been assigned to you by God. Look at verse 17. The life that the Lord has assigned to him. So he's saying by calling you in that setting, that setting has become part of your call. By being called in that particular setting, you need to move forward with the understanding that that God has assigned to you uh, that place. And that place is where you to live out your spiritual calling in Christ. You don't need to change. You don't need to do anything else. You don't need to be someone else. You have arrived at your destination. You don't need to plot a new course on the GPS. You've arrived already. Now, as, as sometimes we do, we have to say a little disclaimer against the opposite extreme. He's not saying that, that once God calls you and, and wherever he calls you, you have to stay there no matter what. And you're locked into those circumstances until you, until you die. He's not, he's not saying that. His point is this. Your setting and your circumstances are irrelevant to living out your, your spiritual calling in Christ. One life setting is not any better than another life setting when it comes to living out your faith. And your setting and your circumstances are not an accident. God assigned those to you. And God knows what he's doing. So that's the command. We need to fully understand that. And the reason he's bringing his teaching is because these these new believers, these raw believers, were, were setting their eyes on these life settings and thinking, well, I need to move. This is okay, but that would be better. I, I, I want to I check out uh, what it would be like to, to live over there. And they were following Christ, again, through worldly eyes. They were thinking that, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm uncircumcised. Maybe I should get circumcised. Maybe that's the way to be pleasing to God. Or I'm, I'm married right now. Maybe I need to shed that. I just need to be single. That, there's where I can really be used by God. Paul's saying, no, that's not it. 
They were attaching spiritual importance to unspiritual things, to, to things that had no, no bearing on, on living out their faith. Salvation is by faith through grace. You cannot improve your spiritual condition by changing your worldly position. Okay? We, we cannot change our spiritual condition by changing our worldly position. You don't need to travel anywhere. You've arrived. And then he concludes by saying, this is my rule in all the churches. This is universal. This isn't something uh, specific to the church in Corinth. He says, this is the way it is everywhere. I want everyone to remain in the setting that they were called. Now we can move to the two illustrations. Now they make much more sense. Now that we understand the command. Uh, Circumcision speaks to worldly religious status and slavery speaks to worldly social status. He brings these two examples in, I think, fairly purposely. So verse 18, Paul raises the example of circumcision and tells them, remain where you were when you called. You don't have to move. Don't seek to change your status. Now, to the Jews, circumcision meant everything. It's very difficult for us in 2022 to kind of go back and put ourselves in the shoes of these people in the first century. But circumcision to the Jews was everything. It was the sign of the covenant. The the New Testament covenant sign equivalent is baptism. It was that important. It was a marker that indicate that someone was set aside and recognized as belonging to part of God's covenant people. Um, to have your son circumcised on the eighth day, to, to, to be a Jewish family and, and to have your son circumcised on the eighth day according to the law was like following God 101. It was so basic, so elemental. You, you have to start there. You have to at least do that. The Jews regarded circumcision as one of the most important commands in Scripture because it, this is one of the commands that took precedent over the Sabbath command. And that means when you've got uh, a circumcision that's supposed to take place on the eighth day, and the eighth day happens to fall on a Sabbath day, and they have to choose between, what do I do? Do I, do I not do this because it's the Sabbath, or do I do it? And if you remember from our time in the Gospels, they took Sabbath observance very seriously. You couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. When that happened, they circumcised. It took precedence over Sabbath observation. This was the marker which identified who belonged to God and who did not belong to God. If you were not circumcised, they considered, no, you're, you're not part of God's people. It predated Moses. It, it went back to the time of Abraham. It, it, it continued uninterrupted from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus. And so remarkably, in verse 19, Paul says, doesn't mean anything. Neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Doesn't mean a thing, says the Jewish Christian, Paul. Doesn't mean a thing. Now, we understand, uh, being on this side of the cross, having all the New Testament before us, we understand that Jesus of the New Covenant abrogated the civil and ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic Law, but the moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments, remains. That's still in place. But all the civil and ceremonial laws had passed away with the coming of Jesus. But even though this was true, the significance, the social and religious significance of circumcision didn't just go away overnight. 
they had been practicing this for centuries. And so as you can imagine, it didn't just disappear. People didn't just say, oh, okay, and they walked away from it. No, it still held a, a very large significance, especially for Jewish Christians. Paul says, ignore all that. It doesn't mean anything. It's not going to get you any closer to God. It's not going to make you more acceptable to God. That address of, of being circumcised or uncircumcised, that's, that's not going to make you in, in a better position to live out your calling in Christ. So he says, were you circumcised at the time of your call? Then you have arrived. Were you uncircumcised? You also have arrived. You don't need to go anywhere. What's important, he says, is keeping the commandments of God. That's where we get the only thing that matters is faith in Christ and following Christ faithfully. That's what matters. And Paul says you can do that in any life circumstance. You don't have to set a new GPS location. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. That's a restatement. That's number two, restatement of the command. And then in 21 through 23, he raises the example of bondservant and freedman. And in order to get the most out of this passage, we're going to have to unpack both of those terms. Bondservant and freedman. If you had an ESV and an NIV and a KJV laid out in front of you and it opened to this verse, you would see three different translations. The NIV says, were you a slave when you were called? ESV says, were you a bondservant when called? And 1 Corinthians says, art thou called being a servant? So we've got three words, slave, bondservant, and servant. Now we appreciate the ESV, that's why we, we, we use it, that's why it's in the pews, because the ESV does a good job of taking that one Greek word for the, the, that is translated in all three of these ways, and instead of just translating it one way, just like picking slave and then running with it throughout Scripture, it actually pays attention to the context, and it, it, it selects the exact word that matches the context. So we appreciate that. When absolute ownership by a master is being communicated, the ESV translates the Greek word as slave. Slave, in this context, was the lowest form of slavery. They were considered property with no rights. It was prevalent uh, in the ancient world, and it was usually the result of being captured in battle and being made a slave, or as the result of a judicial sentencing. Um, but it wasn't so much popular in the first century. When a more limited form of service is being communicated, the ESV translates the word doulos for slave as bondservant. This describes someone who is bound to serve a master for a limited amount of time, but is usually paid. They could own property. They were often released by their masters or eventually bought their own freedom. And once freed, they were called freedmen. That's the other word that we're looking at. And often these freedmen voluntarily chose to remain with their former masters and continue to serve them as freedmen. When there is an even wider range of freedom associated with the type of service being rendered, the ESV translates the Greek as servant. These were also very common in the first century. Servants were often entrusted with great responsibility. They were considered members of the household. They were often uh, deeply loved as if they were family members. 
So we need to understand there were three types of slavery in the ancient world. By the time we get to the first century, most were bond servant or servant. I believe there were a few slave gangs working the mines and things like that that were considered that lowest form, but most of them were bond servants or servant. Very different than the chattel slavery we think of in the 19th century. It's estimated that in Corinth at this time, just to give us some more perspective, one-third of the population in Corinth were bond servants. And another one-third were freedmen. In other words, they used to be bond servants. That's how prevalent this type of, of bond servant service was. So now that we have that understanding, let's look at verses 21 through 23. There were bond servants in the church in Corinth at the time when Paul addresses them. And he says, were you a bond servant when called? And astonishingly, Paul says, do not be concerned about it. Now, now why would he say that? Why would, why would Paul say, don't, don't be concerned whether or not you're a bondservant? He follows up and says, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he was free when called as a bondservant of Christ. And he's saying, if you're if you a bondservant when you're called spiritually, you're free in the Lord. You're free from the power and the penalty of, of sin. If you are free, you're actually a bondservant of Christ. How? Because we serve Jesus Christ as our master. So Paul was equalizing and leveling the ground between these two social statuses. And his point was this. Your circumstances do not affect your ability to live out your faith in Christ. You can do that whether you're a bondservant or a freedman. Now to be a bondservant in the first century carried huge social significance. They, they definitely placed a big emphasis on, on where you stood in, in the pecking order of, of the social and, and cultural context of the day. Paul says it's irrelevant in Christ. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't make a difference one way or another. Being freed or freedman is no more spiritual than being a bondservant. So his, his, his final conclusion is this. Were you a bondservant at the time of your call? Then you have arrived. Were you a freedman when you were called? Then you also have arrived. You don't need to go anywhere. The only thing that matters is faith in Christ and serving Christ faithfully. He's not saying that slavery is good. If you look at verse 21, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He's saying no matter where you fall in this sin-infested dead world, you can live out your faith in Christ. And then the basis for Jesus being our, our owner and master, verse 23, you were bought with a price, do not become bondservants of men. You already belong to Jesus Christ. Don't place yourself in a situation where you belong to another man. Verse 24, in whatever condition each was called, let him, there, let him remain with God. Once again, he's repeating the same command he said in verse 17 and in verse 20. Like I said, kind of hard to miss. If we had to summarize this passage, you have arrived, we could say this. Paul is telling the raw believers in Corinth to stay or continue in the life they were living when they were called because the Lord has assigned them that life there is nothing they can do or be that will make them more acceptable or useful to the Lord. They don't need to change their life setting. 
They have already arrived at their destination and are positioned to serve Christ faithfully. That's what he's trying to communicate. Now, let's apply this, and before we get to the, the main application for us in today in 2022, we've got to deal with a couple issues. First, let's deal with the issue of slavery, because this comes up, and, and here it is, so we're going to tackle it head on. Uh, sometimes, and it's usually unbelievers who are not familiar with the Bible, they will point to verses like this, or maybe like in Ephesians somewhere, and they will say, look, see, the Bible is, is pro-slavery, that's why I'm not a Christian. Um, I would reply by saying, is this an example of the New Testament promoting slavery? I would say, no, Paul's not condoning slavery. He says, but if you can give your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So here we've got an example. The New Testament is teaching to seek your freedom, if possible. That's a far cry from condoning slavery. Again, opponents might say, well, that's just still not good enough. The Bible should just come out and plainly say, say that slavery is evil and slavery is a sin. And to that I would reply, it does. It does. It plainly states that the kind of slavery that we would normally think of, the chattel slavery of the 19th century, is sinful. In fact, it's listed in a vice list along with several other sins. Look at 1 Timothy 1.10. It says, the sexually immoral... Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And then if you've got an ESV, you'll see a footnote next to enslavers, and it defines it as this. That is, those who take someone captive in order to sell him into slavery. So our response is, it does. It does plainly state that it's sinful and wrong. Here's the remarkable thing. In a time where the world commonly accepted this this slavery issue and bond servants, the Bible speaks to them as people, not as slaves. They are fully welcomed in the church and considered an equal status. Uh, the Bible consistently grants equal and full spiritual status to everyone who places their faith in Jesus. Galatians 3.28 is another example. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the Bible recognizes slaves and bondservants as people when everyone else in the world did not. When, when everyone else in the world looked like looked at them through the lens of non-human, one of one of the ancient uh, Greek literature and, and common understandings was to view slaves as quote living tools. That that's the way they were viewed in that culture. The Bible does not view people that way because they're made in the image of God. So very, very radical stance. Paul writes to slaves and addresses them in, in the same letter as if you were writing the wealthy elite. The church treats them with dignity and as equals, and it advocates for their freedom. Do not become slaves of men. If you can give them your freedom, do so. So the Bible says slavery is sinful. It says seek your freedom if possible. But it does not say, and maybe somebody is looking for this, an objector to, to scripture. It does not say if you are a bondservant, rise up, rebel, gather followers, get organized, start a revolution, protest, resist, burn the system to the ground, use the sword, fight for your freedom, kill your masters if need be. It does not say that, and that should never be taught or preached. That's not the way of Christ. Followers of Christ have never been and never will be changing the world through political, social, or military means. The church is called to proclaim the gospel and to make disciples 
And as the church does that, societal and social reform will inevitably follow in its wake. That is what the church is about. It's not called, we as the church are not called to change the world, but the gospel does change hearts. And people with changed hearts, with faith in Christ, will establish and practice truth, righteousness, and freedom wherever they live. That's how the world gets changed. So that's the the slavery issue. Uh, Number two, the issue that we need to deal with, unfortunately, in 2022, is this misunderstanding. He's not saying remain in sin. He's hitting it really hard. He's saying remain in your setting, remain in your circumstances. What he's not saying is remain in your sin. And sometimes these verses are twisted and and misapplied to uh, make that case. Uh, We see circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free, craftsman, uh, fisherman, government, farmer. Yes, stay there. You've arrived. It does not mean, for example, to use an example from chapter 6, if you're a prostitute, that God wants you to remain in that life setting. That's not what it's teaching. It doesn't mean that if you're a bone breaker or an enforcer for some mob that you're supposed to continue in that profession. I know those are some extreme examples, but today the way this is used is sometimes there are people who try to justify remaining in sexually immoral lifestyles. That's usually how it's applied today. They would say something like, this is who I am. Um, or they would say, this is the way God made me, it's immutable, it's part of who I am, it's my identity. And then they come along this passage and they say, well, if this is who I was when God called me, and he doesn't want me to change, I guess God wants me to remain as I am in this current sexually immoral lifestyle. Um, no, that's not what Paul's saying. God does not want anyone to remain in sin or remain in a sinful lifestyle. And I would direct them to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, where Paul lists a bunch of sins, including sexual immorality, and he tells the church, such were some of you, but you were washed and sanctified. Clear teaching that says you are not to remain in sexual immorality. God has called us all to, to move forward in our sanctification. When God calls us, part of that called. Part of the gospel is repentance. Repentance. We can't cut that out. In the very first chapter of Mark, Jesus came and says, repent and believe. They go together. We can't say, well, I'm going to believe, but I'm not necessarily going to repent of my lifestyle, my sin, or anything that's contra to God. No, he calls us in Christ, and he calls us to have our sins forgiven, as we place our faith in Christ, the part of that call is repentance. Turning away from sin. Mortifying sin. God calls us to sanctification. First Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So, God does not want anyone to remain in a sinful lifestyle, and he's not assigning a life of sexual immorality to anyone. Now that we've dealt with those two issues raised in the text, let's, let's get to the, the 2022 application. Let's move from then to now. The question we need to ask ourselves in light of this passage is this. Are we tempted to set our GPS to a different life setting 
Are we tempted to, to look where we are in life in our setting and then look over somewhere where the grass looks greener and say, you know what, that's where I need to head. There I can be a more faithful disciple. There I can be better used by God. Once I get over there, then I know he will be pleased with me. Now on the one hand, people grow and learn and mature. We go to school, we change jobs, we move around. There's normal life, especially as, as students, as young adults, as we're preparing and training and going through life and finding our, our way and finding our setting and calling. We understand all that, right? There's, there's things that, that happen. We're mobile. We're getting married. We're having children. Our life settings change as we live out life. We get that, okay? That's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is about Christians thinking that in order to be more acceptable to God or more useful to God, that they need to change their life status or their life setting. So thinking they need to do something else or be someone else. That's what this passage is about. And so today, when, when as believers we think, if only I could do this... If only I could be this type of person, if only I could be where I want to be, then God would smile on me. Then I would be able to do great things for God. Then he could use me. In order to be acceptable or useful to God, does does everyone need to to quit their job and enter full-time ministry? No. No. No, is, is, is everyone called to, to go to seminary and pursue ordination? No. In order to be acceptable or useful to God, does everyone need to sell their house and, and move to the mission field? No. Are missionaries, the, the, the frontline missionaries, are they the real heroes of the faith? Are, are they going to get the most well done, good faithful servant at the end? Are their crowns going to be the shiniest? No. No? What about moving to the the inner city and and working in dangerous neighborhoods full of crime and fatherlessness? Is that where the real ministry is done? A a believer, and I've heard some say something along the lines like, well, if I could do dangerous, urban, gritty ministry, then I know I would be in the center of God's will because that's where the church is needed the most. Is that true? No. No, there are sinners everywhere. What about gaining online popularity, likes, loves, and followers? Because believers may think, well, I've got all these gifts and talents that that God has given me, but nobody's really aware of them. If only I had my own podcast, if only I had my own channel with 3.7 million followers, then, then I could be used by God. I need to find a way to boost my stats. If only I could start writing and get published. If only I could get invitations to speak. If only I could go back in time and start over. All it would take would be a few small different choices I'd made when I was younger. Then I'd be in a much better position to serve God today. Or how about this one? If I could make enough money to quit my job, then... God could use me in ways that are just not open to me right now. I could devote myself to full-time ministry and service if only I didn't have this job that I had to worry about. 
then I could finally make a difference in Christ or for Christ in his kingdom. So the question we have to ask ourselves as we reflect on this passage is, do I have my GPS set to a life setting that's different than the one that I'm currently living in? If so, what is it? And whatever it is, if you've experienced this temptation in any way, then you need to understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying God places each person where they are for a reason. We are to live out our faith in Christ wherever and however he has placed us in whatever circumstances he has assigned to us. It is no accident that we are exactly where we are right now, today. The life setting that we currently have has been assigned to us by God. Let's put it this way. Do you, would, you, would we want to make any kind of major life decision that's outside the will of God? Do you want to make some kind of big jump like quitting your job or moving or any, anything like that? Do you want to do that and not be in God's will? No. No. That does not turn out well. It, it does not turn out well to say, well, I think it'd be better over here. I'm not really going to consult the Lord because I've got the means and the time and, and the, I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. I'm just going to go for it. No. If God wants you to quit your job and become a missionary or move to the inner city or sell your house and buy 30 acres and start homesteading or or whatever it is you think is going to place you in a better position to serve God, he will make that clear. He has no problem reassigning people when he wants them to make big moves like that. Do you remember in, in grade school or junior high when we played dodgeball and those, those rubber playground balls and you get hit in the head with one of those? When God wants to move somebody, when God wants to take somebody out of their current life setting and put them somewhere else, it's like getting in the head with a rubber playground ball 18 times in a row. It's just ping, 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 ping. There's no way you can miss it. So when he wants to move someone, he will. And he's very good at it. He's very good at it. But unless God reassigns us somewhere else, this passage is commanding us to stay at our post, to nail our shoes to the floor and remain in the setting that he has assigned to us. That's the passage main point. Remain where you are. You have arrived at your destination. Right here, right now. The life you're living is the life that God has assigned to you. There is no bigger or, and better life than the one that God has assigned. So Paul says this, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Amen. Heavenly Father, when we are called by you, we are overwhelmed with gratitude and thanks for forgiving our sin, for securing our salvation. And Father, one of the things that we do when we come to Christ is, is surrender. 
And we're very willing to surrender and to do whatever you called us to do. Father, we ask that you would make that plain, make it clear. And unless there is some clear, unambiguous, repeated, confirmed call to change our life setting, Father, we understand that this is the assignment that you've given us. And that each one of us, where we're placed, can serve you faithfully. So Father, we ask for a full measure of your spirit to serve you with everything we have right where you've placed us. Amen.